We're going to be talking about the church in Thyatira today, and it is one of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. This is the ruins of the church of Thyatira. There's not, as far as I know, an active church there, at least a Christian church. The Christian church was kind of taken over by the by the Catholics, and it moved to Europe over in England over in, I think, the early 1920s or 1930s. Um, it was actually exiled. It was cast out of the, the modern-day country, and that's where most of the people that were part of that church at the time, where they reside at now. So just a little bit of history there. Uh, but that's the, the church behind us. It was, it was one of the smallest churches of the seven we're talking about. It probably was the smallest church. Um, and which is kind of an interesting thing because it, it, even though it was a small church, it was still very big on God's heart. Um, and it kind of gives us the, a lesson there that it really doesn't matter the size of your church. It matters the size of the God in your church. And this church, like most of the churches, did some things really, really well, and they did some things not so well. So we're going to go ahead and jump into this and look at this. It's, normally, this is called the um, the compromising church or something along those lines because they they tried to uh, condone or compromise uh, with the world instead of standing against the world. They tried to incorporate the world into their services and into their church. So we're going to go ahead and jump into this in verse number 18 of Revelation chapter number 2. It says, And unto the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So Jesus is, is again, uh, presenting this to the, the angel of that church. He's giving it to the, uh, uh, the pastor of that church, and he's identifying himself, and he uses three ways to identify himself. First thing he calls himself, of course, is the Son of God. And so he identifies himself in, in verse number 18 as the Son of God. He's the one that's speaking. He's the one that everyone owes their life and their salvation to. He's the one that's talking here, so there's no doubt as to who it is. He talks about his eyes. They're like, like flames of fire. This is uh, in reference to the fact that, that Christ sees everything. There is no such thing as a secret sin. There's no such thing as a hidden sin. Christ sees everything. And since he sees everything, he has to, to deal with everything. Um, oftentimes, Christians think that they hide things from him, but we don't hide anything. Nothing is hidden from him. Now, this can be a um, if you're involved in sin, this could be a, a, a scary thing because he, he sees what you're doing. But if you're not involved in sin, if you're being persecuted, you don't have to wonder whether or not God is aware of it because he's aware of it, because he sees everything. He sees the very heart. He sees more than what you see. Oftentimes when we're persecuted, we just have the end result of it. We don't see all the hatefulness, and all the planning and all the failed attempts that go into it. But God sees all of those things. His eyes are, are a flame of fire, not just for those that are doing bad, but also he sees the faithful. Um, and that's why he's able to reward us when we stand fast, when, when we resist temptation. He's there and sees those things. We don't have to wonder whether or not um, we're being um, viewed or whether or not God's keeping good records and all because he keeps everything. In Jeremiah 16, 17, he says, For my, mine eyes are upon, upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face neither is there iniquity hid from mine eyes. This is, I, I can't imagine what this must be like for, for God. Um, I was talking to somebody at church today, and they were talking about how that they, um, that their, they, their children, their adult children, that they, they didn't believe they were involved in a certain activity. And 
the comment was made, they, they said that, well, as far as I know, they're not. And then they kind of prefaced it with, and if they are, I'm kind of glad I don't know. Um, you know, sometimes we, we like the things that we don't know, or we take, I'm trying to word this properly. We take, we, it's good not to know things sometimes. Uh, it's good to be in the dark sometimes. It's good not to have knowledge of every single thing that, that the people around you are doing, because if you know every single thing that the people around you are doing and have done, you may look at them or treat them differently. God doesn't have that luxury. He doesn't have the luxury of not knowing because he literally knows and sees every single thing. Then he talks about his feet. He says his feet are like brass. And we talked about this. Um, I don't know if it was last week or the week before we talked about this, how this is in reference to the, um, to the brass on the altar where the, the sacrifices were made. This is a, a picture, a symbolic picture of the fact that, that uh, God is, um, that Jesus Christ rather is the ultimate judge. So he declares that his feet are like brass, that, that he is the, and he, he's the ruler. He's the judge. He's, he's the one that, that with his feet of brass has the authority to judge and the authority to crush those that are um, speaking untruthfulness in the world. And we're going to be looking at one of those people tonight, uh, a person named Jezebel who claims to be a, a spokesperson or a prophetess of God. Verse number 19, we see, it says, uh, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So first he, he gives them a compliment. He's talking about the, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the believers there. He gives them a condemnation. He says, uh, our accommodation, excuse me, gives them accommodation. He says, you know, this is a very active church. This is a church that's working. This is a church that's, that's showing love for people. This is a church that, that is, uh, has service for people in the community. They're, they're reaching out in their community um, with love. You know, I don't, doesn't say exactly what they're doing. Maybe they're, maybe they're feeding people. Maybe they're helping people. It doesn't really say exactly what it is, but, but God wants them to know, and, and Christ wants them to know that they are being noticed. Uh, they have patience. They have endurance. They, um, um, they, they have, uh, um, they would have ministries that are growing in that community because of the work they're doing. This is by, by no means is this a lazy church. This is a church is doing great things for God, great things for Christ in that, that they are serving and they are working, um, for him in this, in this area. Verse number 20 says, notwithstanding. So, so even though there's, they're doing a lot of good things now he's saying, but I've got some problems here. He says in verse number 20, excuse me, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to, to seduce my servants, to commit fornications and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. So we see what he has against them is they've allowed false teachers to come into the church. They've allowed this false ministry. Now, this person, he identifies her as Jezebel. And there's some debate or some confusion over, you know, is this person's name really Jezebel? Or is this person just acting as a Jezebel, as the, the Old Testament Jezebel? If you remember the story of Jezebel, Jezebel was the uh, heathen wife of Ahab. Ahab was the, the king of Israel. And because of her, she Ahab ended up first allowing compromise within the country. He allowed her to bring in her gods and to build temples into her gods. And what ended up happening is the once her gods were established, um, the true God and the temples to the true God were, were wiped out. 
I think the number, of, if memory serves me correctly, there was a hundred of the Old Testament priests left, and they were in hiding at the time. And uh, Elijah came out, and of course he made his his uh, uh, famous, now famous, um, confrontation where he challenged the worshipers of Baal to a um, to a, a showdown, basically. And they were to, uh, he let them go first and they were to call down fire from Baal and they were to ignite this, this uh, offering. And of course, Baal couldn't do it. And then he called upon God after pouring water upon the sacrifice, he called upon God and God consumed it. Um, the uh, priests of Baal were executed and you'd think that that would have been the end of it, but instead that just raised, uh, um, made Jezebel even more angry and she ended up putting a price on his head and, and calling for, for his head, and he ended up going into hiding. And it's an amazing story. It's a fascinating story. But, but we see that she was the spirit of compromise in Israel at that time. She was the, the, um, the one who brought it in, and she brought it in a little bit at a time, but her intention the entire time was to do away with God's people and um, instill her false gods. And, of course, we know how that ended. It ended with her being cast out of the window and her body being... Um, mostly eaten by by dogs, just as Elijah had, had prophesied many, many years before, or Elijah, rather, uh, had prophesied many, many years before that. So um, that spirit of Jezebel is more likely what was taking place here. It could have been somebody named Jezebel. It doesn't really matter whether she was named Jezebel or wasn't named Jezebel. She was teaching basically the same type of compromise and the same type of doctrine as the Old Testament Jezebel was teaching kind of ironic that the the name Jezebel literally means um, depending on how it's interpreted is where is the prince or where is the Lord because that that bell or bail um, is is literally a name for Lord in that language so whenever they couldn't find their their God or whenever their God was um, in the underworld or wherever they thought he was and he wasn't answering their prayers they would cry out Jezebel as in, where is our God, or where is our Lord, or where is our Prince? And that was her name. She was that name. Uh, she was named as one who is calling out to this false God. By the way, it's a good lesson for us as well today. Um, although you don't see too many direct Baal worshippers today, the name Baal, like I said, translates into Prince or or into Lord. Um, so I can imagine if there were Baal worshippers here, they'd say, "Well, look, we worship the same God as you because you call your God Lord, we call our God Lord." But that was very different than our God, the, the Baal. But yet today, the Muslims and those that um, that are sympathized with the Muslims, they they teach that same thing. They say, well, well, Allah means God. And so since Allah means God and we worship God, we all worship the same God. But that's not true. The God of, of uh, the Bible and the God of, of Islam are two completely different beings, Uh most more, the the God of Islam is much more like the God of Baal um, than the true God. So just because a word means the same thing doesn't mean it's talking about the same person. Like this in this case, this is not the Old Testament Jezebel, but it may be somebody named after that Jezebel, or it may be somebody that's acting the same way. In the same respect, we we've all met people that have the same name we have, but yet they don't, they're not necessarily, they don't act like us or think like us or look like us, but they have the same name. So it's a good lesson there for us as well. Let's continue to move on. We see the, the, the problems of Jezebel that she brought into that church. First, she was a false teacher. And 
the church was allowing her to teach anyways. They were allowing false teachers to teach false doctrine within the church. Uh, secondly, not only was she a false teacher, but she was allowed to seduce the Lord's servants. She was allowed uh, reign, free reign to be able to, to talk to them and, and be able to, to trick them. We've had many people come to our church that have had very, very bad doctrine, and they're welcome to come and worship with us, but they're not allowed to teach. Um, and I've had that conversation with a few of them privately and, and told them, you know, I, I understand what you believe, but what you believe isn't in line with the Bible. And if it's not in line with the Bible, you can't teach it here. Most of them are very short-lived at our church. Um, some stick around for weeks or months even. Uh, but when they realize that we are steadfast, that we're not going to allow false doctrine to be taught at the church, they usually purge themselves and go off on their own. Um, we generally never have to tell somebody they can't worship with us. They just, when they're not given the the authority to be able to spread their false doctrine, they typically go someplace else to a church that, that will allow them to teach the false doctrine. She was seducing believers into com, uh, committing fornication um, and all manners of, of immoral acts. Now, fornication here is used in two senses. It, it literally means fornication, uh, having sex outside of marriage, but it also means fornication against God, where we are called to worship and do things a certain way, but instead we are, they were worshiping a, a false idol. They were worshiping false things and false teaching. So it's that type of fornication against God. Uh, we talked a little bit this morning, we talked a lot this morning about the, the, the feast and the symbolism of the feast. And the, the, the symbolism there was God the Father inviting the world to come to the, his wedding feast, to his son's wedding feast. And we know that the son was the groom. But maybe what we don't know is that the bride is the church. And so when the church is giving our loyalties and allowing false doctrines to invade it, in essence, we as the bride are committing fornication against our, against our groom, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what was taking place here. They were allowing these false teachers to come in. Um, and it, it happens today. Um, in a, an attempt to be relevant, the church today has, um, and when I say church, I'm talking about churches as a whole, not, not the church that I, I pastor, but churches as a whole have allowed um, false doctrine to enter in, and, and not just false doctrine, but a compromising doctrine, where they allowed the world to seep into the church um, in order to be relevant. They feel like if in order to be relevant to the world, they have to become more like the world. And our job isn't, we're never called to be relevant to the world. Our, our job is never to become more like the world. Matter of fact, we're, we're supposed to be separated from the world, not part of the world. But a lot of churches teach that, that we have to be, um, you know, we have to go to ungodly events and we have to go to ungodly weddings and we have to go to all these ungodly things in a, and a sign of compromise with the world, because if we don't compromise with the world, then the world won't listen to us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's the, 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 the doctrine of the Jezebel, where we compromise with everything that we, knew, everything that we do with the world's standards. An interesting thing about that that was pointed out to me many years ago by another pastor is anytime the church compromises with the world, it's always the church that changes. It's never the world that compromises to become more like the church. So anytime we set ourselves up as, as a church to compromise, we always are the ones that change. It's not a meeting in the middle as they try and portray it. It's always the church changing to become more like the world. It's never the world changing to be more like, um, to be more like uh, us. 
Now, Thyatira was a city that was known for its uh, production of um, uh, materials, cloth, particularly purple cloth. Was They were renowned for their purple cloth. They also did other types of textiles and other things of that nature. And business was a big part of this culture here. Uh, they weren't so much an agriculture as what they were a, a manufacturing community. And because of that, if you weren't part of the community, it made it very difficult to make a living. And so for them to compromise, they were compromising so that they were able to um, basically support their families, you know, having faith in the fact that the community was going to help them as opposed to having faith that, that God was going to help them. All these teachings, these false teachings of Jezebel, um, that the believers shouldn't separate themselves, go contrary to what God tells us to do. Um, and Jezebel was, was, as the false teacher, was seducing believers to commit adultery. Um, many of the trade guilds that were in service at that time were demanding a, alliance and allegiance to them to the point that it became idolatry. Um, we still have that in our country today. We have groups in our country today that, that um, if you really get into their, their systems, you really get into what they're teaching, um, it's idolatry. Uh, the Masons uh, organization being one of those that I've, I've had people that were part of the Masons that said, you know, I couldn't be part of that because they demand a worship of a God that's not the God of the Bible. And so when you start seeing those things, and we have churches that are intertwined with these organizations, these man-made organizations where they, they have secret covenants and they have secret levels. And, and when you first come in the door, everything seems fine. But as you grow in that organization, you realize that it's occultic and they have a lot of cultic symbols and a lot of occultic practices. We have uh, probably the, probably the second largest Baptist church, possibly the largest or second largest Baptist church in our town was founded by this organization. Um, and it's still ingrained into that, that church today. Um, they're almost, I mean, they basically almost share the same property as a road that divides them, but, but they almost share the same property with them. And uh, their teachings are still ingrained in that church. And it's a popular church. I know many people that go there, uh, but, they're a compromising church. They, they don't portray themselves as, they actually portray themselves as just the opposite of that. But in fact, they, they have allowed themselves to be compromised with these, these organizations that are manly and worldly. Um, and remember what idolatry is. Idolatry isn't just um, worshiping a graven image. Idolatry is, is worshiping or allowing anything to take the place of God. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, it could be your family, it could be your job, it could be your car, it could be your hobby, uh, whatever that thing is that takes the place of God and usurps his authority in your life um, becomes your idol. It's very rarely is it a graven image like we always, you know, we see on TV, everybody bowing down to a statue or something. It's rarely that. It's usually a thing or, or something created that um, in our lives that, that draws so much away from us. So we, we got to keep moving. I'm going to run out of time if I keep rambling on. Verse number 22 says, behold, I will cast her into her bed. Well, actually, before I get there, let me, I want to back up to verse number 21 for just a second. He says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. And it caught my eye when I was just getting ready to read the, the next verse, because look at this, even Jezebel, even this woman who has come into this church with her false te teachings, who has decimated this church, who has damaged this church, who has hurt this church, God still gave her an opportunity to repent. She refused, but he gave her that opportunity. It shows us how gracious our Lord is. And no matter where we are, if we are truly wanting to repent, our God is there waiting for us to repent. 
he desires our repentance. I, I just, I just, he has no reason to, to be honest with you. She has done nothing but cause him pain. She has done nothing but cause his people pain. The people that he loves so much, he, she's done nothing but hurt them. And yet he is still giving her an opportunity to repent. Our God is gracious beyond my understanding. Our God is gracious beyond anything that I would ever do. And I, you know, I, I consider myself to be a fairly gracious person, but you know, you start hurting my family, you start hurting my people. I, I lose my patience very quick. God is still being patient with her here. He's still giving her an opportunity to repent in verse 21. Now verse 22 says, behold, I will cast her into a bed and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and, and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So we have a warning here. First, the warning is to, to Jezebel. He says he's going to cast her into a bed. That means he's gonna, she's going to have ailments, sicknesses. She's going to be uh, sick. Now, we don't know because of her lifestyle. This could have been some type of venereal disease. This could be... Um, because of the things that take place there. It could have been a cirrhosis of her liver. It could, it could have been anything. It could have been something that God placed specifically upon her, like boils or some other type of illness, whatever it was. It, it was most likely though, because just the way God generally works, he's casting her into her bed. He's going to afflict her the way that she has lived her life. Um, oftentimes people, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I got saved and I quit smoking, and yet I still have COPD. Why is that? Well, just because there's not going to, you get saved, that, that takes care of your eternal consequence. But when you spend 40 years smoking cigarettes, there's going to be some physical consequences that you're going to deal with. Can God take those away? Yeah, he can. Most definitely can. But he doesn't always do that. But that's a temporary thing. That's a short-term thing. We need to be more concerned with our eternal destination than how we end our life here. But there are consequences. And most of the time, it's, it's, I don't want to say ironic because it's really not ironic. It's fitting. It's justice that we are punished in the way that we lived our lives. Um, the things that we do to ourselves, it, it, our, our sin usually matches up with our punishment. She was going to reap what she sowed. You know, you, you sow cigarettes for 40 years, you're going to reap COPD. Um, you, you drink for for your entire life, you're, you're going to reap that cirrhosis of the liver, whatever it may be. She, that's what's happening here. Then there's a warning to those who, who gave in to her, uh, gave in to her seduction, gave in to her, the lifestyle that she was promoting. Those who refer, refuse to turn to Christ and separate her from the world, they're going to suffer a great tribulation. I, I find it interesting that here he's talking about her dying, basically, you know, sick and dying. But the people, they are going to be given a um, time of tribulation. So in other words, he's not separating himself from them. These are, these are hopefully believers, but they're going to be given a time of, 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 uh, of trouble, a time of turmoil, a type of tribulation because of this. Um, there's the warning to the children of Jezebel. And there's debate over who the, the children are, whether or not they're physical children, which I don't believe they are. There may have been physical children. I think this is more likely those that um, followed her, those that, that um, allowed her to... Um, to um, influence them to draw them away from God. I feel that it's probably more likely those, um, and this is going to be the chastening hand of God upon them. 
um, if they are believers, they're going to have that chastening hand. And God tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.30, he says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. If these are unbelievers, then then the, this this uh, could be talking about the second death that we will talk about as we get a little further into the book of tribulation. The point is there was always a chance for these to repent. They had the opportunity to repent. Christ still loved them. He was still reaching out to Jezebel. He was still reaching out to them. Um in Revelation 2, 23, it says, All the churches shall know that I am he which stirreth the churches, the reins, and the heart, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Why is he going to punish them? Not just because of the justice, because he wants the world to know that he's a just God, that people reap what they sow, exactly like he had said. He wants people to know that. He wants the world to know that, that they reap what they sow. Um, he's not going to compromise. He's not going to... Uh, allow a little bit of sin. God always deals with every single piece of sin. We're short, shortly running out of time here. Let's continue on verse number 24. He says, but I say, and, but unto you I say, and unto the rest of, of Thyatira, Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. So he's talking about this, the those that stand fast, those that that um, don't fall into the depths of Satan, and that's that's an interesting phrase right there. I'm, I'm getting a little sidebar, but but he's equating what she was teaching and them following when they're following her teaching. He's equating that to be in the depths of Satan. In other words, they were they weren't like Christ anymore. They weren't Christians now. They're in the depths of Satan. Um, this is a a picture, he says, he's not going to place any other burden upon them. But what is that burden? And there's a lot of debate about that. What is that burden? Um, and it just simply means that he's not going to be persecuting them further like he is the other people. He also isn't going to force Christians to completely separate from the world. Um, we are to live separate from the world, but we also have to live in the world. In other words, we don't have to move to a commune or an island or something someplace, but there needs to be a clear separation from us as Christians and what the rest of the world is doing. Um, verse number 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works until the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of a potter shall be broken to shivers. And as I receive, even as I receive of my father. So there's a promise for the overcomers that we'll rule with him. There's going to be a time when he comes back and he establishes, reestablishes this world. And uh, those that are faithful at the end, we're going to worship, we're not just going to be there with him, but we're actually going to rule over nations. There's going to be hierarchy. There's going to be uh, places for us to rule. Uh, some of that is detailed in the Bible, but most of it we'll find out when we get there exactly what it is that we're going to be over. I would imagine it'll probably be similar to the, the government that he set up with Moses, where we have some that are over tens and some that are over hundreds. And then, of course, we all ultimately report to Jesus Christ because he will be over everything. Um, we'll be given that power over nations. And then it will, the overcomer, it says it's given the, the morning star in Revelation um, 28. It says, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. That morning star is a picture of Jesus Christ. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, he says, I, Jesus sent my, my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. 
I am the root of the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So he's saying he's giving himself to us. He is the bright and morning star. He's, he's literally giving himself to us. Now, this phrase bright and morning star or morning star um, has caused a lot of confusion among churches and all, mainly because the of uh, the bad translations of the Bible that are out there. Um, if you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 with me real quick. We're not going to read the whole thing out loud or just write that down if you don't have your Bible right in front of you. Write down Isaiah 14, 12. Now in Isaiah 14, 12, God is talking about Lucifer. He's giving details of when Lucifer fell. In the correct verbiage, um, he is called a, a son of, or, or something along those lines. In the corrupted versions, he is called the morning star or bright morning star or something along those lines. And that, that is something that was corrupted in one of the early translations. And since the newer translations rely heavily upon the older translations, newer translations, newer, newer Bible translations, they, they don't always tell you this. They, they make it sound like they go right back to the Greek and right back to the Hebrew, but, but they rarely do that. What they do is they take older English translations and retranslate those and reinterpret those for today. And so when there's an error like that in there or a purposeful error like that in there, then they, they can, it continues on and continues on. So if you've got a Bible that in Isaiah chapter 14, 12 identifies Satan as a star or as a morning star, you've got a corrupt Bible. You've got a, a bad version of Bible, whatever it is. It's one of the reasons why I stick with the King James Bible because it's, it's accurate and it's true. But if it uses terminology like that, um, and why that causes confusion is because now you have the bright and morning star. You have Jesus saying he's the bright and morning star. And you've also got God saying that Satan is the bright and morning star. So you've got two people given the same title, the same, in essence, that Bible is declaring that Jesus and Satan are the same being. Um, this has led to a, a ton of bad theology and a lot of churches that are using bad Bibles. Um, this is why it's important. Um, readability of a Bible, even though I find the King James very easy to read, readability is, is one of the last things I look for in a Bible. I want, I want purity. I want the, as close to the original text as I can get. And in my opinion, and from what I've studied, that, that's the King James Bible. Uh, but if your version has that in there, understand that you are using a version of the Bible that is not clear. Uh, then he tells anybody that has near, let him hear. This isn't just for that star, that, that angel of that church. This isn't just for the people of that church. This is for all Christians, because this is a warning for all of us not to allow that false doctrine to invade into our churches. Um, we need to be separated from the world. We have to live in the world, uh, but we shouldn't compromise with the world. We shouldn't allow the world to influence the church. The church should stand firm on the doctrines of, of Jesus Christ. And as the church stands firm, we should encourage and hope that the world will change to be more like God and not more like, or not, not us more like them. I'm going to go ahead and open it up now. We've only got a couple minutes left.